Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. The last time we saw the attempt at stifling Peter and John's open-air preaching about the resurrected Christ. Today we're going to see the disciples' response to this persecution and then go into the difference between giving from the heart and hypocritical giving. Starting with verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So in context, if you weren't here last Sunday, they, there was Peter and John were involved with this great healing of this lame man. Uh, and of course, after the healing, Peter preaches a sermon about why he was healed He preaches the resurrected Christ. They're arrested. They're imprisoned for the night. They're interrogated, threatened, and then released. Now, Peter and John find comfort with their companions. They report this renewed persecution, and then they did what? What was their next step? They schemed about how to get these guys back. Did they try to buy some of the favorable religious leaders to their side? No. They went to prayer. You ever find yourself in a position where someone is coming against you? What are some of the natural natural defense mechanisms? Get all your friends together and muster a bulwark so you're safe and protected. Maybe go on the offense and assail that person's character before they could assail yours, sort of like a preemptive strike. Sometimes prayer isn't even one of the responses. Hey, I don't have time to pray right now. I'm in trouble. Can't you see that? So have you seen that? Have you been there? Let's see what the example of these believers are taken in steps. The first step, what they do is they report the situation and they go right to prayer together. What was the substance of that prayer? Well, in verse 24, they say, Lord, you are God. The word in Greek used for Lord is despota, which was where we get the word despot from in the English, which means someone with absolute power, a potentate, or a sovereign. However, the word in the English, have you ever heard the word despot before? You, you, a negative connotation comes to mind. Why? Because it's usually the word despot is assigned to a man, maybe a dictator or, a, or some type of leader of a country, okay? And when it's applied to man, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But see, when despot is applied to God, it is good because God can handle that power without being turned to evil because God is not evil. So the first thing is God is acknowledged for who he is. The second step is they pray a prayer of substance, a prayer of faith in God's power and his wisdom 
and his goodness. In verse 25 through 26, they start in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. If you look at these two verses, you see that the prayer that they're praying is taken from Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is an interesting psalm because why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Why do the, the kings and the council, counselors take uh, counsel together to go against the Lord and his anointed? What it is is it's a picture of it's a picture of since the beginning of man how man tries to get together and tries to fight. The leaders of the world try to fight against God, against his rules, against his precepts, and against his anointed, his anointed men, and ultimately his anointed Christ. So what they do is they go through this prophecy of this Messiah, the history of the Messiah, and ultimately the Messiah's trial and death. Now, Psalms, like other prophecies, because Psalms, many of the Psalms are prophetic, what they deal with, they often deal with an event that was happening at the time that the psalmist wrote, but they also had future fulfillments. It's believed that Psalm 2 arose out of a common event, which was the coronation of a new king, where the subjects had to come forward and pay homage and respect to that king. And often there were coups and rebellions, and they would test the new leaders. So you could see the, the, the meaning at the time it was written, and you can also see the prophetic meaning to it. It's, it's, it's messianic. And these believers are saying that it's fulfilled the second time here wherein all these people in power conspired and murdered the Messiah. So the believers are using this, this psalm in context and saying, listen, it's happened before when David wrote it, but it's also happening now when the Messiah was, was crucified. And we also know there'll be a third fulfillment of this psalm in the last battle when the Messiah returns in judgment kind of reminds me of 2 Kings 19. If you remember your history, King Sennacherib of Assyria was coming against all the nations. And he sent his, his, his leader, his representative, the Rabshakeh, to Jerusalem. And he was taunting the king and the troops on the wall saying, listen, we've conquered all the other gods. Your God is no different. We're going to conquer your God. We're going to take you over. So you might as well just give up. What does King Hezekiah do? He actually takes the correspondence that was written about these threats and he goes before the Lord and he spreads it out and he says, Lord, do you see what they're saying about you? King Hezekiah does the right thing. He goes to God. But in this instance, also with Hezekiah, Psalm 2 is also repeated where the, you know, he's anointed as the king and all these other nations come against him. But we know that Hezekiah was, uh, he prevailed because he went before the Lord. Verse 27. He talks about how the leaders gathered together and they you know, went against the Messiah. It says they were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. So you see, sovereignty and free will, they go hand in hand. And it's all throughout the scripture. And I just like to bring it up when it comes up. We see that these people made decisions to crucify the Messiah. They all were in collusion. But at the same time, he says, but God, this was your predetermined plan. So God's sovereignty, how he controls the events, but also man's free will work hand in hand. Verse 29. Let's look at the, a little bit of the substance of this prayer. In the Old Testament, we had what were called imprecatory prayers. David, you know, break their teeth, destroy the enemies, uh, get them back, Lord. You're on my side. Let's get them, Lord. Let's kill them, Right. But in the dispensation age of grace, which we're in, we see that 
more the prayer turns now to, Lord, not kill the enemies, but give us the power and the strength to shine the light of Christ. Let's be a better witness to these people. Let's win them over to our side. So you see the prayers change now. They take on a different tone. There's a temptation in prayer to always look for an easy way out of our problems. But here you see that they're asking not for an easy way out. They're asking, Lord, help us to weather these storms. Help us to go through this tough, tough time. And I believe we are, and you know, it's a temptation for us to always ask, Lord, you know, Lord, this is overwhelming. This is a problem. I got this to deal with. Lord, take it away. You know, Calgon, take me away. You know, get rid of this stuff. But a lot of times we should be asking, Lord, give me the strength to weather these, these storms and go through these trials. And sometimes when God doesn't take away our problems, we tend to think that he's not listening. But again, maybe he's looking for us to be strengthened by going through these things. I think about the missions field. Uh, in some of the nations that are hostile to the gospel, a lot of these pastors' wives become widows because their husbands are murdered. Uh, either by fanatical religious groups or by the government because they're hostile to Christianity. And I, I read a lot about missions news. And a lot of these women have these prayers, Lord, forgive them, and Lord, help them to see the light of Christ. Lord, help the work that my husband did as a pastor not to go and, and be, be worthless. Help that work that my husband did to have an effect on these people. That's pretty impressive. Because our natural reaction is, avenge me, Lord, help me, be on my side, you know, help me to be victorious. So the second step here is to pray a prayer of substance. Pray like you mean it and pray it in faith. God doesn't want to hear equivocal, faithless prayers from us, mealy-mouthed prayers, because it's an insult, it's an insult to his character. If we go before God, number one is the last resort, you know what, Lord, I tried everything else, okay, can you help me out a little bit here? Or if we go to him like we don't really think he could do it anyway, but we're just doing it because the Bible says we should, that's, that's hurtful to him. You know, he's our father. He wants to bless us. He wants to help us, right? So we need to ask God. We need to um, exercise our faith. And we, when I say we, notice me is in there too because we, we can have that tendency. We're all human. And we should, when we pray, we should... Talk to God who he, like who he really is, like these disciples did. Despota, Lord, Sovereign, Potentate, Creator, Master. You know, these are the titles that we should address him by because he deserves it. And I'm not trying to hype anybody up on emotion because the Bible says that faith is a gift. Ephesians tells us that. Uh, it's a measure is given by God and we can exercise faith. In the case of the centurion, remember the Roman soldier that came before the Lord and said, my servant is ill uh, I know you can do it, and I'm not even worthy to come to you, but you could just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus actually marveled. So some of that faith, that, that, that increase and in building of faith, was attributed to that centurion. So we can build our faith. Romans 10.17 says, by the word of God, it increases our faith. And we also should ask God to increase our faith. One of my favorite passages of scripture, it's only one line, but in Mark 9, there was a father of a demon-possessed boy who came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus asked him if he believed, could you believe that I could do this for your son? And he said, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. He says that in one sentence. Now you might say, that's ridiculous, that's a contradiction. It's really not, because we do believe, and this is a picture of all of us, we do believe. 
but sometimes our faith needs a little bit of a shot in the arm. It needs a boost. The fact that you walk down a quiet street or you're in your house and you're, you're talking to the Lord and you're, you're looking up because that's where we usually think he is, up there, uh, and you're praying, the fact that you're actually talking to the sheetrock and you, you, you expect God to answer you shows that you have some faith. Otherwise, you should be committed for talking to the sheetrock, you see? So we do have faith, but we just need that faith to be increased at times. Verse 31 says, a few things happened here. The place was shaken. The place was shaken. There was a filling with the Holy Spirit, and they received the boldness that they asked for. Yeah, baby, that's what I'm talking about. That's, that's great. So you pray, you pray with substance, and the third step is step back and watch God work. The bonus is that often we get more than we ask for with God. The place was shaken, and receiving another... Another receiving with the Holy Spirit was not something that they asked for, but they got it anyway. Kind of reminds me of Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with that passage, one of my favorite passages. Uh, Isaiah says, you know, I saw in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he just describes the the Lord's presence and the train of his robe filled the temple and the, the, the seraphim had six wings and with two wings they flew and with two they covered their eyes and with two they covered their feet and they shouted, holy, holy, holy. You know, they thundered this and the, and the, the temple was shaken with the, with the voice of their, of their glory to God. He was awestruck, Isaiah, and he saw the great power of God and he also uh, wanted to be a servant to do God's will. So this is a recipe to do, for what to do in a crisis. Pray, pray with faith. And then the third step, which sometimes we often have a problem with, is actually stepping back and watching God work. Because, again, we live in the age of the fast food. You know, burgers, fries, and a Coke, you want that supersize. Within a minute, they actually clock it when you go through the drive-thru, and they've got to get it to you before a certain time. And we try to almost take that and bring it to our prayer life. No, we need to sit back. And we need to wait on the Lord and we need to let God work. Verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having sold land, uh, having, having land sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In verse 32, it says they were of one heart and one soul. In the Greek, it's hey kardia kai hey psuche mia. And the reason why I say that is because there's two words in there that are interesting. Kardia is where we get, you know, cardiac of the heart. And the other word is psuche, which in the English we get psyche or mind, soul. What the expression meant literally, if you take it for its context, is these people were knit together emotionally willfully, intellectually, and spiritually. All of Jesus' teachings and the power of the Holy Spirit all start to come together. They were unified as the body of Christ with the mind of Christ. Imagine that. All of the church coming together with one mind 
and one soul. Imagine if that happened today. And I'm not talking about unity for the sake of unity. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad doctrine out there. Jesus spoke about the many false teachers and the false messiahs and the, the rifts that would come and the, and the love growing cold and the, uh, the departure from what was understood of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. So this stuff was prophesied. But wouldn't it be great if the church was of one mind and one heart and one, one soul? The heading of this is the early church voluntarily shares. This is a sharing of goods that were not necessarily commanded by God. The scripture doesn't reflect that. It was done voluntarily out of unity and love. And it shows a few things. The first thing is these people were more heavenly minded than earthly and worldly minded. There's an expression that goes, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, right? That's a foolish expression, especially among believers. If you put that to your life, you'll never see the, the, the power of God happen like the book of Acts. There's no way you can do earthly good unless you're heavenly minded. They have to go together, right? The other thing is uh, there was a sharing that showed love for one another. John thirteen thirty five. Jesus says, they will know you that you are my disciples by the love that you have for each other. And imagine that, just like the unity of the church would be great if all Christians had that love for each other and that people would say, they, I know they're Christians because they really have a love for each other. Now, there was a few things happening. Um, there was the, remember we talked about before, between uh, Passover and Pentecost was roughly 50 days. And these people who came from different parts of the Middle East and the Roman world at the time stayed there because of the amazing things that happened with the Holy Spirit. So, you know, they were thinking they would go home afterwards, but these great things happened and they end up staying. So, of course, maybe the disciples, they were motivated out of these people were running out of supplies and they wanted to share those supplies with these sojourners. It's also possible, and, and you see it happening later, that this whole preaching of the resurrected Christ didn't go well in the synagogues. And many people lost their, their family base and their neighborhood base because they started preaching the resurrected Christ. So they moved out of these areas and they needed some help. So another motivation for this. And other persecutions that started that these Christians uh, sold their goods and shared it to take care of these people. Now, we spoke of generosity previously, and it's a lesson that many can learn. And I think this is a great example of generosity. What's really sad is that um, when you see people who go from really like rags to riches, you ever know somebody who maybe started off humble and somehow did well, and they made a lot of money. And they were generous when they didn't have anything, and now that they have money, they become stingy. How does that happen? But it happens. They forget where they came from and who gave them those goods that they could use to bless the kingdom. It's kind of like they have that G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip on their possessions and they don't want to get rid of them, you know? Verse 33, there's a sharing going on. There's a result of unity and love. There's great power and great grace. And what happens with this great power and great grace is an overshadowing, a complete overshadowing of the imprisonment and, and that whole threatening thing. It kind of fades away, doesn't it? And I see that, uh, in my life, and I'm sure many of you see that in your life, everybody has problems. And you, as you go through life and as you get older, things happen with your body, things happen with your kids. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of problems in life. You know, we, we run into these potholes every so often, these speed bumps. But when you're in the presence of the Lord, whatever your problems are, they start to fade into the background. I remember when, uh, and my wife and I have had our share of, of many different problems, but 
I remember when our son was diagnosed with Asperger's, Asperger's syndrome, which is a mild form of autism. Um, actually, one of the couples in the church told us that there's a statistics that parents of these children have a 80% divorce rate because of, there's a lot of stress that comes with it. There's a lot of communication barriers that you have, and there's a lot of things that you have to overcome, you know? But, you know, whatever it is, and our, our son is a joy. I mean, we're, we're thrilled to death. I mean, he is such a sweet little kid. But first, when you find these things out, you're like, okay, something else is happening in our life, but you go to the Lord. And as you get closer to the Lord, you know, it, it gets to the point where you kind of don't even think about it anymore. It's under the Lord's control. And he makes things work. You see what I'm saying? I don't know how my wife and I could have been through, gone through most of the things that we went through or half the things without the Lord. It just wouldn't have happened. Verse 34, it says, nobody lacked. And nobody lacked as a result of living out the commandment to love their neighbor. 36. So now what we see is, you're introduced now from the church to uh, Barnabas in, in specific. What they, what they call that is a syllogism. You go from the general to the specific. So the church shares, and now we see one particular example of somebody who shares, and that's Barnabas. Joseph or Joseph Barnabas. Joseph, his name means increaser. Barnabas means son of encouragement or son of consolation. And that term was a, um, a term given to him by the disciples. He was a Levite from Cyprus. The Levites, if you remember from the Old Testament, performed the temple duties. They were religious men. What you're starting to see here is you're starting to see the softening of the religious system. You see Nicodemus in Jesus' time was, was, was agreeable to the faith. He learned from Jesus. He came at night in John chapter 3 to learn from him. Joseph of Arimathea said he was a council member, okay? We tend to think of the Pharisees and, and the council people, and they were all bad people, but no, nobody's all bad. Uh, these guys, start, some of these people started to soften to the gospel. We see here, the instance here with um, this Levite. And then we also see, as we go through the scripture, Gamaliel was a notable Pharisee. We're going to see that the next time we come together. And also in Acts chapter 6, we see that many of the priests came to the faith. So we see a softening and, and a, a, a penetration into the religious system. And what I find interesting about that is sometimes the hardest people to penetrate are the religious people because they're so ingrained with rituals and, and um, wrote things that they do and giving money and they say, you know what, I'm good because I'm in this system. And God likes the system that I'm in. So it's hard for them to understand that they need salvation, that you don't get to God through, through works. You get to God through a relationship with him, right? More on Barnabas. Barnabas goes with Paul on his first missionary journey. John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, was his cousin. And Barnabas displays a love and generosity as he sells this land and trusts the apostles with the proceeds of it. Barnabas was an example of someone with pure motives. He wasn't pretentious. He was giving without hypocrisy. And that's something that we should always be examining for ourselves, our motives. We could do something that appears so good, but it could be so evil. What are our motives behind anything that we do in life? Why are we here today? Why do we do some of the things that we do in front of our Christian brothers and sisters? What are our motives, right? It all comes back to that. That's why good works can't get us into heaven because the Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance. We look at people, maybe they're dressed nice or it appears that they're helping some 
old lady across the street or they're putting money in the, in the basket and we think, wow, what a great brother or sister. But we don't know the motivation behind that. But God does. God looks at the heart. See? And then the next example, we're going to see the impure motives that someone has for doing something that seems good on the outside, but we're going to see why it's not good. First Peter 1 says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Now, this is really a continuation of chapter 4. And remember, the, the chapters and the verses came later after the scriptures were already written uh, because of the connecting and comparison word, but it's connecting these few verses to what just happened at the end of uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to see a comparison really between the heart of Barnabas and the heart of this husband and wife team, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, this may seem a little harsh at first until we do some investigation. The first time I read this, I was like, oh, you know, well, that's pretty harsh until you actually study it and you understand what's going on under the surface, right? Like the way God sees it. The couple has this plot of land and they go with the flow. They sell it. They don't have to. And they give some of the proceeds to the church, but lie and say they gave it all. Remember, none of this is commanded by God or required to be a member of the church in the first place, as Peter explains. The first thing Peter tells them is that they didn't have to sell the land. And after selling it, they didn't have to give any of the money. Second, we see Peter's problem is that they were deceitful and they were hypocritical about their giving. But what really we see is it wasn't Peter's problem. It was the Holy Spirit's problem we see that Peter is sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. And the Holy Spirit is, is speaking through Peter, in a sense. Peter explains to them that by being deceitful, they have both lied and tested the Holy Spirit, verses 4 and 9. And did you catch that where Peter says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God? I don't know. And we talk a lot of, about scriptures that equate the Holy Spirit with God. And this is one of the best ones. He's saying specifically the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit is God. Ananias and Sapphira are the antithesis of Barnabas' example. They probably heard what Barnabas was doing. Probably a lot of people heard what Barnabas was doing. And they wanted a piece of the action. 
They wanted some glory, so they followed suit. They saw Barnabas' example, except they had a different heart. And they said, well, we're going to do the same thing. They were ambitious. They wanted notoriety in the church. Somebody else, if I scroll back in my memory, who, memory who was like that, and his name is Satan. He was ambitious. He said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend the heights and be like God. Satan's ambition is what got him cast down from the presence of God. This is all about pride, deceit, lies, self-aggrandizement, ego, hypocrisy, and jealousy. This is also about the desperately wicked, the deceitful heart of man. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. This is about seeing someone doing ministry who gets noticed and your jealous heart wants a piece of the pie. But you don't want to serve like the other person, but you do want to give less and get the same notoriety. Someone who's a good example, if you think about it, and it just came to my mind, someone who's a good example is a drawing salve, right? To those whose hearts are bad and motives are bad and who are a bad example. I kind of think of that uh, when you have like a boil or something. You take that drawing salve and it kind of sucks out that gross stuff, right? But this is what it is. You know, they see this Barnabas example and his, his such a good example that it actually starts to pull bad intentions out of other people and it starts to rise to the top. And the question is, who hasn't been there? Who hasn't seen someone else in ministry and been jealous for that position? I've been there until I experienced all the difficulties of ministry. And now I say to myself, what the heck was I thinking? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've also hoped that, you know, just you know, trust me, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I've also hoped in some instances, like Ananias and Sapphira, that God would strike some people down too, you know. Like, but nobody here. I'm looking, no. Be careful of that slippery slope. The Bible says not to think more of ourselves than we ought to, to esteem others more highly than ourselves. When we think too much of ourselves, pride becomes unbridled. And when unbridled pride leads to jealousy, and jealousy leads to self-aggrandizement, and that's usually done through deceit and lies, as was the case here. A few more points here before we close. Everyone who is in the church of God is not necessarily of God's. And whether it's here or any other church or a church across the globe. And we may ask, why aren't a lot of practices or great interjection of God's power such as this and the striking down of Herod that we'll see later, why doesn't that happen today? And there could be a lot of reasons, but I would just say that one good reason is respect to Ananias and Sapphira was this was a, a fragile church that God was growing. This was a church under incredible opposition. This was something that was a, a, a speck on the map of the world, that God wanted his gospel to be preached to all the nations. So he had to weed out the wolves. He had to do things to, to keep the church pure. And then we'll see later on that this stuff happens less and less. And actually what it gives way to is Paul now, in his letters advising the churches how to do church discipline. Because, you know, the, these, these great manifestations of people getting struck down kind of didn't happen as much anymore. Unfortunately, many churches are reticent to do some of this church discipline because it's not popular. They're afraid to trouble the waters. But you may be surprised how many mature Christians will buck the word of God in this case for popularity. And that's not right.
but that's a subject for another Sunday. The conclusion is this section of scripture is all about prayer, love, unity, generosity, and pure motives. It's a picture of emulating Christ. This is also about jealousy, pride, lies, hypocrisy, deception, and testing God, emulating Satan. And it's interesting how even as believers, we still have to ask the Lord. We, we still need the Holy Spirit. We still need the Lord to perfect us because some of these things, to some extent or another, uh, we still retain that we need to get rid of. Even lies. God hates lying. Satan was a liar. I mean, if I'm supposed to be home for dinner and I'm going I'm somewhere and I'm a little bit late to get home for dinner and my wife calls me on the cell phone and I just left and she says, where are you? And I say, I'm almost home. I'm lying, <laughs> you know, and you could say, I could rationalize it and say, well, I'm only 15 miles from home, but I know in my heart, I'm not almost home. You see what I'm saying? And I think too many times we allow some of these things to creep into our lives and we, we, because people aren't getting struck down left and right, we allow some of these things to fester and we really need to weed them out of our lives. The church today is filled with those like Barnabas and those like Ananias and Sapphira, except now, like I said, God doesn't strike people down or I haven't seen any lately. But Jesus said the wheat and the tares would grow together, often indistinguishable from each other until harvest time, where the tares then would be thrown into the fire. And I just pray that all of us today wouldn't leave here without testing our own hearts against the scriptures today. I pray that if any of us look at these and have any of these tendencies that we would repent and ask God forgiveness. Because the same God that struck down Ananias and Sapphira hates those sins just as much today as he did back then. Let's pray. I haven't seen any lately. 